0: Welcome to Creation, Myth or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist, Richard Walker. Greetings to all of you out there, and especially those of you who have an interest or an education in the biological sciences. And I'm saying that not because that's all we talk about on Creation, Myth or Miracle, but rather that will continue to be a focus for today's show Overall, what is Creation Myth or Miracle about? It's about the idea that there's actually evidence for belief in the Bible, including the history recorded in the early chapters of Genesis. That is, a six-day creation by a supernatural God. Now, of course, our culture tells us over and over again that belief in that is idiotic. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Any educated person knows better. And that is what I believed in the past. However, let me recommend that you remain skeptical. Be a skeptic. Be a free thinker. Insist upon evidence for what people tell you is true. Then examine that evidence to see if it's consistent, complete, and actually makes any sense. The biblical-based belief system is not, as many people think, a belief system based upon no evidence at all, just some sort of eyes-closed, fumbling-in-the-dark, blind faith. Blind faith was a pretty interesting music group. It is not the basis of the Christian biblical belief. Rather, we're told there is evidence. Jesus himself pointed to the miracles and said, if you don't believe my words, at least look at those miracles, consider that evidence, It shows who I really am. And furthermore, as we often mention, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, indicated right at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 that there is evidence for the Creator in the creation around us. So that implies if we examine that creation, which is the job of science, then we ought to see evidence that points to God himself, to the Creator, Paul was quite specific. He said God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made. That's a pretty testable statement, as we think of testable in the scientific world today. So, look at the evidence. Test that statement. Is it possible to look at everything around us and explain it completely, adequately, and honestly, without any reference at all to an eternal creator that transcends the physical universe. In other words, can we put together a working, naturalistic explanation for everything we see? The evolutionists claim absolutely, but we need to examine the evidence they present to back up that claim. And let me ask you a related question to this whole idea of testing any theory or any belief system and testing the evidence that's presented. How many times do we allow a theory to make false predictions and still continue to believe it? Evolution continues to produce predictions that fail. And we'll give you just a couple of examples. Intermediate fossils... Darwin himself admitted in his book that the intermediate fossils, demanded by his theory, not just expected, they're actually required, hadn't been found. However, he said, we just haven't found them yet. We haven't dug up enough fossils. That excuse is still made occasionally by people, but it's made out of ignorance or deliberate deception because fossil experts have flat admitted for quite a while those intermediates ought to have been found if they ever existed. And in fact, some famous evolutionists and experts in paleontology, Niles Eldridge and Stephen J. Gould from the American Museum of Natural History, built a new non-Darwinian version of evolution based upon the fact that these intermediates aren't found. In fact, it's sort of interesting to read their writings because they say things like, We really ought to treat the fossil record as evidence, which means stasis, that things don't change over time, is evidence. And so they came up with punctuated equilibria as a new evolutionary theory. How about another example? Darwin's tree of life, that is, the sequence, the branching sequence from the original common ancestor of life from which all of us exist. The nodes of the trees are the creatures. At the end of an evolutionary path, we're a node on this tree just like everything else is. And this tree of life, who's related to whom, how far back they branched, which ones have common ancestors, etc. All the relationships were supposed to emerge from the fossil data. That is, looking at the attributes of the creature, were supposed to allow us to construct a tree of life. I thought it always did when I was a young student. After all, it was there in the textbooks. I mean, I'm sure all of you have seen it. Did it really work? No. There was never a single tree of life that matched the fossil data. Instead, there were multiple, competing, contradictory fossil-based trees of life. However, I was never told that when I was a student, If you're a student, have you been told that? Well, this dilemma was supposed to be resolved once we figured out what DNA is and developed some tools to examine and sequence DNA and take a look at the similarity of the information contained within the DNA, compare various creatures for how similar are they based upon this molecular data, and this was supposed to show us which of the fossil-based trees – remember, there were multiple contradictory ones – which one of those is correct? After all, if evolution occurred, there is exactly one correct tree of life. So now we've got molecular data, we do the sequencing, we do the work, we compare them. Did it select the correct fossil-based tree of life? Nope, it did not. Rather, we got a new set of contradictory trees. Depending upon which aspect of the molecular data you emphasize, which genes, for example, you look at for similarity, you get different trees. Exactly like the problem with the fossil-based evidence. There, depending upon which physical attribute of the body plan of the resulting creature you emphasized, you got different trees. In fact, it's so obviously bad that experts such as J. Craig Venter are flat out saying there is no tree of life. Venter called it a failed experiment based upon some old data. It just doesn't work out. Now, if you're a student in the biological sciences, I hope this is familiar information to you. If it's not, you need to ask yourself, why isn't it? And by all means, don't trust me. Look it up. If you go to creationmythormiracle.com and search for Tree of Life, you'll find several entries that contain several pointers to the scientific data and information coming from atheist evolutionist experts. Do your homework. Use your brain. Be a skeptic. Be a free thinker. And examine this. And if you've been told in your classes or your textbooks that the information really is consistent with a Tree of Life and you haven't been Told about all these problems. These are not new, by the way. If you're unaware of these based upon your education, you need to say, Why have I not been told the whole picture? Why am I being misled? If you're like me at all, I was rather unhappy when I found out I wasn't getting the whole story. Anyway, use your brain and examine the evidence. Now, let me ask you a question What is the difference between a reason and an excuse? If I claim I have a reason for believing something, it's based upon some data, and that's my reason, and then that data is proven wrong, but I retain the belief, and in fact I continue to point to that same data as my reason, do I have a reason at all? I don't think so. I think we have ventured into the realm of an excuse. I'm repeating an excuse for believing something that I either want to believe is true, or still believe is true despite the evidence. Perhaps my favorite example of something like that in the realm of biological evolution is the people who still espouse a belief in embryonic recapitulation. That is, the idea that human embryos, for example, go through various stages of our evolutionary history. You know, a fish stage, an amphibian stage, a reptile stage. That belief was based upon pure fraud over a hundred years ago. Fraud that was denoted as fraud over a 100 years ago as well, and yet it is still promoted to college students, at least as recently as just a few years ago. On today's show, we get to share the fourth and final part of an interview series between Casey Luskin of the ID the Future podcast and Dr. Jonathan Wells on the subject of information contained within the membrane of a cell and never contained or specified by the DNA. However, this information is absolutely essential for the development of a creature from a single cell, and it is completely unaccounted for by Neo-Darwinian evolution. If you miss the first three parts of this interview, they will all be available within 24 hours on creationmythormiracle.com. You can also listen just to the interview itself at the ID the Future website. Their podcast is excellent, and I highly recommend it, and I'm grateful that they've allowed us to air portions of their information. Now note, intelligent design is not creationism. That claim is often falsely made, hoping you won't pay any attention to intelligent design. Intelligent design is really nothing more than the scientific process of examining the data in front of you and seeing which is the best explanation inferred by this data, given what we know. And ID adherence, I am one, claim that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. That's the heart of the ID concept. Does the evidence point to undirected natural selection, or does it point to the involvement of an intelligent agent? And the distinction between these two are to be made by what we know, what we observe, not only about the specific evidence being examined, by what we observe in the world around us. What is the cause for the effects that we see? Now, the evolution community does everything it can to get you to ignore intelligent design. Why do you think they do that? It's because their arguments are persuasive. So make up your own mind, and you can't do that if you don't examine the evidence yourself. Definitely do not base your opinion entirely upon the writings of evolutionists who are denigrating intelligent design. They never tell you what it actually is. So now engage your brain, evolutionarily developed, or put there by an intelligent cause, whichever is the case. Engage it and listen closely as
1: Dr. Wells
0: is interviewed by Casey Luskin.
1: Does information in living organisms that is carried outside of the DNA pose a challenge to Darwinian evolution? We're going to discuss this question today on the ID the Future podcast with Jonathan Wells, a senior fellow of the Center for Science and Culture, who's just published a fascinating article in Biocomplexity, a peer-reviewed open-access scientific journal that's the leading forum for testing the scientific merits of the claim that intelligent design is a credible explanation for life. I'm Casey Leskin, Research Coordinator for Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and today on the ID the Future podcast... We're going to discuss Dr. Wells' new article titled, Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA. This is the last in a series of four interviews with Dr. Wells discussing his new article. Again, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, we all know that DNA carries biological information – But as Dr. Wells has explained, the DNA information in an embryo can only do its job in the context of spatial information that is specified independently of the DNA, and some of that spatial information is carried by the cell membrane. We've also discussed the fact that some of that information is carried in the membrane in the form of a sugar code and also in a bioelectric code. In today's interview, we're going to discuss what all this means for embryo development and evolution. So, Dr. Wells, thanks so much for continuing this discussion with us on ID the Future. Happy to be here, Casey. So, Dr. Wells, in some of our previous podcasts, I think you've very convincingly shown that embryo development requires information carried by membrane patterns in embryonic cells. Isn't it possible, however, that those patterns are specified by a genetic program in DNA? No, for two reasons.
2: First, DNA sequences do not completely specify proteins, or RNAs for that matter. The membrane patterns we were talking about depend on localized sugar molecules, glycoproteins, glycolipids, or ion channels in the membrane, and specifically those three-dimensional patterns formed by those molecules. So even the protein molecules that make up the patterns are not completely specified by DNA, as I'll explain more in a minute. Second of all, even if DNA sequences completely specified proteins, the three-dimensional pattern in the membrane would not be specified by DNA. So those are the two reasons why you can't reduce the information to DNA.
1: Okay, so this is interesting stuff. I know that it's going to maybe challenge the paradigms that many of our listeners might have been taught when they were learning biology in high school, but this is where biology is going today in the year 2014. So could you explain to us, why does DNA not completely specify RNAs and proteins? Sure. First of all, the usual
2: sequence is DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein. The first step is called transcription from DNA to RNA. The second step is translation from RNA to protein. But if we look at those steps, let's take the first one, DNA to RNA. After DNA is transcribed into RNA, many RNAs, perhaps most, at least in animal cells, are spliced. That is, they're cut apart and put back together again, and they can be put back together again in several different ways. In fact, we know of one sequence of DNA in fruit flies that can basically make over 18,000 different RNAs. So this is alternative splicing. So in the first step, the DNA does not completely specify the RNA. The second thing that happens to RNA is it can be edited. So apart from the splicing, the actual subunits in the RNA can be changed by the cell. In the next step from RNA to protein, the translation step, RNAs do not completely specify the final form of many proteins. First of all, some proteins with the same or very similar amino acid sequences can adopt different final folded forms. These are called metamorphic proteins. Many proteins don't form a final folded form at all until they interact with other molecules in the cell. These are called intrinsically disordered proteins. So the basic point is that from DNA to RNA to protein, you're adding information along the way and ending up with far more proteins than you can trace back to that DNA sequence. Finally, most proteins are, as I said in an earlier podcast, glycosylated. That is, complicated sugar molecules are added to them, which have important biological consequences. So that, again,
1: makes it impossible to trace that back to the DNA sequence. So, of course, you're not saying that DNA doesn't make RNA or RNA doesn't make protein. Of course, DNA does make RNA and RNA does make protein, but there's a lot more information that's coming into this process beyond just those very simple, basic steps that many of us learned in high school biology, and that information is not necessarily coming directly from the DNA. Exactly.
2: So, makes, yes, in a very loose sense, but not in the sense of specifies. So, you need DNA to make the RNA. You need the RNA to make the protein. But in fact,
1: you need a lot more. That makes sense. So it's a follow-up question. You say that even if DNA completely specified RNAs and proteins, that would not specify the spatial arrangements of the proteins in the membranes. Why is that? Well, most proteins,
2: of course, they're released from the nucleus, and then they have to go to the right place in the cell. So they have target areas that they go to. But like a zip code in a postal system, many proteins have a sequence attached to them that helps guide them to the right place. But if you think about the postal metaphor, the zip code doesn't specify the place. It just tells you which place you're supposed to go to. But the place has to already be there. So the location to which the protein is headed has to be there before the protein is synthesized. And those locations, specifically the patterns in the cell membrane, don't come from the DNA. In many cases, they come from membranes that preceded them. So when a cell divides, it imparts its membrane pattern to the daughter's cell, and it acquires its pattern that way rather than through the DNA. This has been shown in many different types of cells, mostly single-celled organisms, but also in multicellular organisms.
1: So are all the cell membranes in an embryo specified by membranes that preceded them then? No, that would be all too simple,
2: wouldn't it? But unfortunately, as the embryo develops, the membrane patterns of its cells have to change because the membrane pattern of a muscle cell is very different from that of a nerve cell or a skin cell or a heart cell. New membrane patterns have to arise in the course of embryo development. They don't just come from preceding membranes. And yet, the DNA isn't producing the original pattern, much less the subsequent patterns.
1: So you say that membrane patterns are not specified by the DNA. Are they random then? What are they?
2: Well, they're they're certainly not random. Embryo development is really amazing in the sense that it always goes to the right place if it goes at all. A fertilized frog egg will always give you a frog. A fertilized fruit fly egg will always give you a fruit fly, unless, of course, it's stopped along the way. If development is blocked. You can end up with a deformed fruit fly or a deformed frog or a dead frog or a dead fruit fly. But you don't get anything from a fruit fly egg except the fruit fly. So development is very robust, very reliable. Actually, embryos can recover from amazing damage. Embryologists see that every day. But the outcome is always somehow
1: predetermined in the sense that the species identity is is always there. So why is that the case? What is producing this kind of fidelity in embryo development? Well, unfortunately, we don't know completely. We have a lot to learn, which for me is
2: exciting because if I thought that science had already uncovered everything we need to know, it would be a very boring activity. So we're still learning what it is that leads to these new membrane patterns, but I find one promising area, one promising approach, is called relational biology. This was developed half a century ago by two guys, Nicholas Rashevsky and Robert Rosen. Now, Most biologists think in what I would say are Newtonian terms, that is, matter in motion. So molecules are like the atoms in Newton's universe, and their places in the embryo are like the position and so on. And the forces between the molecules are the forces in the Newtonian universe. And so the idea is you can build up complex patterns in an embryo just by explaining the interactions between these individual molecules. But in fact, that doesn't work. I can give you every molecule that's present in a a living cell, and you can't make a cell out of it because what's essential is the organization. And molecular biology, unfortunately, discards the organization to study the individual molecules, and once it does that, you can't get the organization back. Relational biology emphasizes the organization and makes it the primary fact rather than the molecules that make up the organization. Could you maybe elaborate some more on what relational biology is? Yes. Well, it's at this point largely in the theoretical stage, unfortunately. It's been largely neglected because of the emphasis on Darwinian evolution, which we'll come to in a minute. But it is being developed, actually, quite extensively. Rosen developed it. Other people, Aloysius Louis has developed it. A friend and colleague of mine, Richard Sternberg, is applying relational biology right now to specific features of living systems and fortunately there's a a well worked out mathematical framework for it it's called category theory which was developed originally back in the 1940s and again has been used to work out in great detail at least the theoretical aspects of relational biology so it's a research program at this point
1: but i think it's a very promising one So, okay, we've talked about the different sources of information that are involved in embryo development. What does all of this mean for evolutionary theory? Well,
2: of course, there are many different evolutionary theories, but the dominant one nowadays, uh, as we all know, is called the modern synthesis, or as some people call it, neo-Darwinism. And this is Darwin's theory that all living things are modified descendants of a few common ancestors and the agent of modification has largely been natural selection. And then you add to that modern genetics, and especially molecular genetics, DNA and RNA, and you get the modern synthesis in which new features arise through changes in DNA sequences. And this is the point where the evidence for information outside the DNA poses a very serious, I would say, fatal challenge to neo-Darwinism, because you can change the DNA all you want, And you haven't really changed the information that's there before it and that helps to guide its expression.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Wells. This has been a very enlightening conversation, not just about the sources of information that are beyond the DNA in living organisms, but also the evidence for that information and and what that means for development and evolution. So thank you, Dr. Wells, for your time. Very welcome. Again, we've been discussing a new article by Dr. Jonathan Wells titled Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA. You can download the paper free in the open access peer-reviewed journal BioComplexity. The website is www.bio-complexity.org. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening.
0: And thanks to you, Casey, for sharing that with us.
1: Creation